Uh, I invite you this morning as we prepare to uh, hear God's word uh, to turn to two passages in scripture, uh, Genesis 16, so Genesis 16, and then also Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. So Genesis 16, and then Luke 7, 36 to 50. And as you turn there, I want to ask you, have you ever felt overlooked? Have you ever felt that people have been seemingly blind to your pain, uh, your needs, your situation, or even just to you as a person? On the flip side, have you ever overlooked someone? Uh, I've been guilty of this a number of times in my life, and one example in my teens stands out because it was very transformative. Uh, so as you're turning to Genesis 16 and Luke 7, I'll tell you a story. Uh, during the year 2000 crisis, my mom uh, was an integral part of her employer's project to fix all the computer systems in the Midwest. So this was a huge task. She would leave for work, leave for work at four or five in the morning. She would get home at seven or eight, nine o'clock at night. Sometimes she slept in the office Monday through Saturday. She's a single mom. It's just me and her. And let me tell you what I did to help her. You're going to be mad at me. Nothing. I didn't do the dishes. I didn't vacuum. I had a license and a car. I did not go grocery shopping. One Saturday morning, you're all horrified, and you should be. Uh, one Saturday morning, I'm playing Nintendo. I hear the lawnmower, and out the window, I see my mom mowing the lawn. And uh, then my grandfather who had come over for some reason, came in and in his very gentle way, opens the door and says, Matt, if I were you, I'd be embarrassed that my mother was mowing the yard. And he just went, out, went back downstairs. And it took a minute for that comment to get into my brain. And then I paused the game and I looked to my left and I saw my open Bible, which I'd just been reading that morning for devotions. And I don't remember what it was open to exactly, but I remember that it was open. And then I reheard my grandfather's words again, and I realized, like, I'm a selfish jerk. And I went downstairs, and I started to mow the lawn. And that sort of started me off on a life of trying to repent for being a selfish jerk. This morning, our passages go together like this. In Genesis 16, we're going to see that God sees us even when everyone around us doesn't see us, or like in my case, wouldn't see us. And then in Luke 7, we're going to hear Jesus call us to learn to see, like he did through my open Bible and my grandfather that Saturday morning. And that's basically how our sermon is going to go. Uh, we're going to read our passages, we're going to pray, and then we're going to look at first how blindness and powerlessness appear in both passages. Then we're going to look at the wonderful truth that God sees us from Genesis 16. And then we're going to hear Jesus call us to see from Luke 7. So let's read now Genesis 16, and then we'll turn to Luke 7. Let's hear God's word. Oh, and kids, Sarai and Abraham are Sarah and Abraham. Their names just haven't been changed yet. And by the way, I'm probably going to be flipping back and forth in the sermon because I'm used to calling them Sarah and Abraham. Don't get confused. It's just all, they're all the same people, okay? Uh, Genesis 16, let's hear God's word. Now Sarai, Abraham, Abram's wife, 
had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Rai. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of the son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. And now Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to verse 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered him, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Fathers, we come and consider these two powerful passages this morning. Uh, we want to know how you see and to learn to see as you do. And Father, we know that this will be impossible unless your Spirit blesses the preaching and the hearing of the Word. Father, this morning, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word, and that the words of my mouth as your preacher, and that the meditation of all of our hearts as those called to hear and respond and receive to your word by faith, that it would all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want to do is look at what I'm calling blindness and powerlessness in each passage. Uh, so, uh, like I said, we can be blind to how we treat others, and we can be blind to how our treatment of others harms them. So, right before Genesis 16, God makes a covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, and we've talked about that covenant recently. Uh, God makes a covenant with Abram to save him from his sins, to give him children, and to give them a place for them to live with him in peace and joy as children of their heavenly father. And you may remember that God uh, seals that covenant by walking through the pathway of blood to show that his death would purchase and seal all of those blessings for Abraham and for his children. And of course, Jesus does that for us on the cross. In the middle of that ceremony, something we didn't touch on at the time Right before God walks down that pathway of blood, he says in verse 13 of chapter 15, I'm going to read it for you, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants or slaves there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is God's prophecy to Abraham that his people are going to be afflicted as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then we come to chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female servant whose name was Hagar, an Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. I don't know why I said female, an Egyptian servant. And uh, with this context, the Bible then implies a question. Do we recognize that we can be both the victims of evil and the afflictors of evil? Do we recognize that we can be both those who are overlooked and mistreated and also those who can overlook and mistreat others? And the answer for Abram and Sarai here in chapter 16 is no, they did not. Notice that Hagar is named by the author and very importantly by God, as we'll talk about in a second. But Abram and Sarai 
they never use her name. To them, she is the slave, and she is a womb. She is dehumanized as their children later would be in Egypt. Also, Hebrew writers love puns, and I think God also loves puns too, uh, because Hagar is a pun on the Hebrew word we translate as sojourner, immigrant, refugee. Uh, by changing the last A in Hagar's name to an E, you get Hagar, the sojourner. Hagar, the sojourner, the Egyptian slave of Abram and Sarah. Your children will be sojourners and slaves in Egypt. The Egyptian sojourner, your slave. And then finally, it's no accident that the author at the end of verse 6 tells us, then Sarai dealt with her harshly. That word dealt with her harshly, harshly, is the same word God uses when he tells Abram that his children would be afflicted as they sojourn as slaves in Egypt. Abram and Sarai are blind to the fact that they are treating Hagar as poorly as their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be treated when they are in Egypt. And they do this all because they are impatient, angry with God. You can definitely get a sense of that in Sarai's comment to Abram. Easily affronted and overreactive. We hear that Hagar looked at Sarai with contempt, which could mean either that she looked down on Sarai because, hey, I was able to do something you weren't able to do, or with anger because she was made to do something she didn't want to do because she was treated unjustly. Either way, what one way to understand this looked at contempt could mean, in our phrase, gave her the side eye. She gave me the side eye, Sarah said, so I want to give her the baseball bat. That's what's happening. They're neglectful of their spiritual obligation to protect the powerless. Abram says, I don't like, basically, I don't like fighting with you. Treat her however you want. She is in your power. Do with her however you please. And that brings us to the second part. Hagar is helpless at this point. She has no say in what's done to her or how she's going to be used for other people's selfish ends. And given the fact that she's oppressed as Israel would be oppressed in Egypt, I also wonder if we're uh, supposed to read this oppression, this harsh treatment, as something that was endangering the life of her baby. Because remember, the Egyptians' oppression endangered the life of Israelite children. And as a slave, she has no power to protect herself or a child. And there's no one to intervene for her. See, Abram and Sarai don't see Hagar, or I think her baby, as uh, what we would say fully human, or what the Bible would say, an image bearer of God. And Hagar is powerless to do anything about it other than to run away from human civilization and safety out into the wilderness and try and find a place to live with the animals by a spring of water. Put a pin there. Let's go to, quickly to Luke 7. There's something similar going on here. A Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner, and while Jesus is there, we're told a woman of the city who was a sinner came to him. That phrase, a woman of the city, 
is open to a lot of different interpretations. It could mean that she was a prostitute. It could mean that uh, she just slept around and didn't hire herself out for money. It could mean that she didn't do any of those things. Maybe she ran a brothel. It could mean something not sexual. Maybe she was a local scammer who committed identity theft and fished people's emails. That's possible too. Uh, ancient writers actually reference drugs occasionally. Uh, they don't use that word exactly, but they describe very clearly what we recognize as drug abuse. Uh, certainly back even in the Persian Empire, there were people writing about uh, precursors to opium. Maybe that's what she was. Maybe she was a drug addict. Maybe she was a little of all of these things. Nonetheless, the ambiguity here, I think, is very intentional. Jesus wants as many people as possible to read themselves into her story. And Jesus wants that because he knows, he wants us to know that he sees that his people you and me can be blind to what sinners need. And I want to talk about this more when we get to our third point, but look at the Pharisees' reaction when this woman comes to Jesus. It's basically ick, right? Gross. Why would you let someone like that touch you? Why would you let her cry on you? The Pharisee is clearly blind to what this woman is looking for. And you can see, I think, especially in the way that she comes to Jesus, this woman has been powerless to get what she needs from God's people because let's be honest, Jesus doesn't talk about forgiveness out of the blue. Clearly what she has been seeking and not receiving is a word of pardon. A word that says God can receive even you back into his folding kingdom. But the Pharisees been too disgusted by her to, to offer that to her. He's blind, and she's powerless to receive what she most desperately wants. And that brings us to our next point, which is that God sees. And for that, we're going to jump back to Genesis 16. So like we saw, Hagar's powerless, and God's people here are blind to their oppression of her. Uh, I think she and her, her baby are very clearly in danger, and so she runs away to this well in the wilderness. And then the text tells us that an angel of the Lord comes to her. And because when the angel of the Lord speaks, he speaks as God and not for God, he doesn't say, you know, God will do this or he will do this. He says, I will do this. I am inclined to believe with uh, every ancient Christian commentator that I'm aware of that this is what we call a pre-incarnate manifestation. In other words, it's Jesus coming to Hagar before he became incarnate, before he took on a human body. This is Jesus. Jesus comes to Hagar, and he says some surprising things. In verse 8, he greets her this way, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? Notice the very first person to talk to her as a person, using her name, is Jesus. He calls her by name, Hagar. And then I think Jesus lets her know that he understands what's going on. When he calls her servant of Sarai, I do not think that this is God reminding Hagar that her primary calling is Sarai's slave. You read that in some commentators. You heard that from this pulpit 
uh, a number of years ago when I first came here and preached on Genesis. And I'll tell you, I now see that as really unhelpful. And as the guy who preached it, probably wicked reading of this text. Remember, back in Genesis 15, God calls Israel's experience of slavery an affliction and an oppression. He describes Sarai's experience here as affliction and oppression. God clearly opposes slavery by setting Israel free. And without getting too much into the weeds, uh, by completely changing what the term is to mean for Israel in the law, and also by calling slavery, this is important to know, uh, an outright sin in Revelation. I just want to point this out. When, uh, when God in Revelation 16 talks about those who worship the harlot, he includes their slavers, those who enslave human souls. In other words, for God, other humans who are practicing slavery are engaging in the antichrist worship of the beast and the harlot. It's that level. It literally is the opposite of Jesus. No, I think what God is saying when he says this to Hagar is, hey, I know what's been going on with you. I understand where you're coming from, but I want you to tell me about it. Those questions, where have you come from and where are you going? Isn't that God inviting Hagar to share her experiences and emotions and thoughts about everything that's happened? Isn't that a wonderful act of grace for somebody whose words have gone unheard, whose pleas for help, which I assume she made, have gone unanswered? She runs out into the wilderness. God talks to her by name and then says, tell me all about it. I want to hear about your suffering. I want you to unload your affliction and pain and confusion and hurt. It's granting her all of this dignity and mercy that she has been denied up to this point in her life. And then after listening to her answer, Jesus says in verse 9, this really surprising word, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So given all that I just said about slavery, like why does God tell her to go back? Relatedly, you could push the question back even further. Why does God let Israel be enslaved in Egypt? To ask those questions brings up a lot of issues. Let me just offer two, op- offer two observations. The first is, I just want to be very clear about this. This is not a call from Jesus to submit to abuse. Jesus wants to free his people from abuse. That's part of what the Exodus is about. I have heard the cries of my people. Right? This is not God telling people in abusive relationships, go back and get hit more. Rather, this is my second observation, through this hard command, God is clearly bringing Hagar and her children into his historical work of salvation by having them endure something of the treatment that Israel would later endure in Egypt. In other words, this is a unique command to Hagar meant to further his plan to bring Jesus into the world and to show the world that the way of blessing through him comes through the cross. God tells Hagar, go back and endure what Abram and Sarai's children will endure in a few years, but go back with the same confidence that I gave 
to Abram and Sarai that I will be with you and with your children in your affliction and suffering, that I will protect you and your baby and your family. Your baby is going to be born. I will multiply your offspring and I will be your God too, even in affliction and judgment. And then in response to this word, this word of, I will be with you even in suffering, Hagar does something that no one else in the Bible does. This is how important the story is. No one else in the Bible gives God a name. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen the him who looks after me. Hagar now knows that Jesus is the God who sees affliction, helplessness, danger, hardship, and oppression. And she now knows that for Jesus, seeing means that he will be with her and with us to give us his presence and his blessing and life even in the midst of the worst affliction that threatens the life of those whom you love the most. My friends, if you feel overlooked, even if it's by God's people, Jesus does not overlook you. He sees you, and he calls you by name, and he invites you to speak with him, and he's giving you assurance now through Scripture that you as his people have him with you, that he is with you to bless you even in times of suffering, and that whatever this time of the cross bearing that you are in, wherever it is, it will lead to life because the God of life sees you and walks with you and is with you in Jesus. But not only that, he's the God who calls us to see too. And now we're back in Luke 7. We're on our last point. It'll be brief. Uh, so remember, this woman was helpless, and those around her were blind to her needs. But as we've just seen, Jesus is the God who sees. Uh, he sees this woman, and he sees the Pharisee. And in his mercy, Jesus calls the Pharisee by name. He says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. And I think it's interesting here when you put both of these passages together to see that Jesus humanizes both the victim and the victimizer. Because as humans, he recognizes that they both need him. They need him in different ways, but they need him. He doesn't demonize one of them. He names them both. So he can call them both to himself. And then Jesus gives this parable about a man who had two debtors. One owes him 500 denarii, another 50. So a denarii was a day's pay. So 500 denarii is basically all the money you make for two years. 50 denarii is basically all the money you make for you know a couple months. Uh, and then Jesus asked Simon um, in uh, the Pharisee in verse 42, which of them will love him more when he forgives these debts? Simon says, the one with the biggest de debt. And Jesus says, correct. But then Jesus asks this question in verse 44. He sort of takes a hard left turn. Do you see this woman? I mean, isn't that a powerful question? 
Why are you blind to what she's looking for? Why are you blind to what her actions are demonstrating to you? And then Jesus helps Simon by making her see her, which is kind of like how I think God used my grandfather to help me see my mom. Jesus says, look, she washed my feet with her own tears. She used her own hair to dry them. She poured ointment on my feet as a, as a sign of love. And, and uh, she did all of this, by the way, while being behind Jesus. If you, I don't know if you saw that in the text, while standing behind him. And I'm assuming that is because she felt so unworthy to be in front of Jesus, that she put herself behind Jesus. But that's not all that Jesus points out, is it? Notice that Jesus shows off her actions to Simon by comparing them to Simon's. Which is meant to think, I think, to get Simon to not only uh, ask himself if he sees her, but if he sees himself. Uh, because not only does Jesus see this woman and Hagar, he also sees us. And because he loves us, he forces us to ask, do we see ourselves? Simon do you see that your failure to be forgiving and welcoming to this woman who is so desperately needs forgiveness is a result of your appropriating forgiveness in such a small way in your own life? And then Jesus, who sees this woman with such profound clarity, he looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now ask yourself then from there, what does Jesus tell us to do as his people in his name later on in the gospel? It's to tell others your sins are forgiven when they believe in Jesus. You see, this is Jesus' invitation to learn how to recognize sinners that Jesus wants to offer forgiveness to through his people in his name who want Jesus to welcome them and to forgive them. This is Jesus teaching us to see how, who we should announce that forgiveness to. My friends, we don't want to be a church that recoils at sinners or at particular kinds of sinners. We don't want to be a church that's blind to those who are looking for Jesus. And we certainly don't want to be a church that's so blind we miss them while they are weeping at Jesus' feet. And we don't want to be a church that's blind to the way that we treat other people. We want to be a church that knows that God sees and that learns to see each other and those around us with the same vision that Jesus himself has in the Bible. And that's why I want to conclude by saying that we need to pray for Jesus' help. We need to pray for Jesus' help to see others, to see ourselves with Jesus' own sight, because Jesus tells us that we can do that in these passages. We can grow in seeing other people and their needs more clearly as Jesus teaches Simon. And we can grow in seeing more clearly how we are in fact treating other people as Jesus calls us to through the story of Hagar. And we can also learn with Hagar to see ourselves as those whom God sees. We can learn and embrace deep down in our souls the wonderful, powerful truth 
that no matter who else may be blind to us, Jesus sees us. And he sees us because he is living with us even in the valley of the shadow of death. Our God is the God who sees. Our God is the God who gives sight. Let's rest in his sight and let's pray and ask him to give us his own vision of ourselves and our neighbors so that together we can live before God's face in the freedom of his grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you see us even when others don't. Thank you also that you uh, don't see us uh, just at a distance, but up close as you walk with us. Please help us as your people to learn to see like you see. Help us to see ourselves more clearly so that we can mature in the way that we love others in your name. Help us to repent where we have failed uh, to see clearly and have acted uh, in sin and uh, in neglect. And uh, please help us also to see others as you see them so that we can learn to minister to them in your name, offering them particularly and especially the forgiveness of sins which Jesus uh, has given us through his cross. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.